I hope you won't be disappointed. disappointed. One, one of the things that we tend to, uh, to do when we come along to seminars with those sorts of titles is to look for look, the silver bullet that we've always been looking for that will actually fix all our evangelistic problems. Uh, and uh, that's why I've got that many books in my library because I'm still looking. Um, anyway, uh, you'll see as I go along how we'll work. But let, let's, just, let's just pray. And uh, we'll open the scriptures in a moment and have a look at some things and hopefully it'll be a blessing to you and to me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this, this topic of reaching the lost for Christ. Uh, Father, you've left your church in this world for that purpose and it brings you great glory when even just one sinner comes uh, to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and brings worship to you. And we pray, Lord, that as we work through this uh, afternoon in the, in the tiredness of the graveyard shift, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to concentrate and to think of you and to learn and encourage one another uh, in this important work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, grew up in Adelaide, uh, in the Christian Reformed Church of Adelaide, my parents were migrant. Um, it was a migrant family. They came out in the 1950s, a Dutch migrant family. Uh, I was only two, so I was born in Holland and I came out when I was two. And the migrant communities uh, didn't have uh, much of an evangelistic um, opportunity or, or fervour for people in Australia, as you can imagine. We did, we did reach out to Dutch, other Dutch migrants that came, and in fact all of our churches were planted because we reached out to Dutch migrants in all the different states and, and planted churches. And so we found it difficult to connect with Australians, and we actually needed community, probably more than anything else, being coming from a, a different country, not knowing the language very well. My parents still don't speak English properly. Um, and uh, we really needed community. And so these churches were founded around that particular need, and they were quite inward-looking, except for two, two things. The, the migrants, when they came out, came, brought with them uh, a, a guy called Abraham Kuyper, who was actually uh, uh, at one point president, no, prime minister of Holland, he was also a brilliant theologian, and he, he came up with this idea of sphere sovereignty, which... Uh, which, and the idea of cap capturing everything for Christ, all things for Christ, or developing that theme. Uh, and, and so we, a lot of my parents and so on came out with the ideas of, of, of Christian schools and Christian home for the aged and Christians in politics and Christians in every different sphere of society. And so uh, the early migrants did do two things uh, around the country, and that is build Christian schools and build uh, Christian homes for the aged. And there are a whole stack of them right around the country. It's amazing, really, how such a small group managed to, to develop uh, such a, and have such a powerful impact through those two things. But they were weak on evangelism. In my 20s and 30s, I, I became pretty keen to reach other people for Christ. I was involved in a Christian band. We travelled all over South Australia, different country towns, playing in churches. Um, I took opportunities to talk about Jesus with my work colleagues. I was involved in reaching out to young people through a community centre in the northeastern suburb of Adelaide, and we actually bought part of a school that was downsizing. 
uh, a bit of property, some buildings, and um, opened a, a second service as part of the church there that I belonged to. Um, and then I went, left and went to Geelong and studied for the ministry. I was about 38 at that point in time. The college years were great in terms of learning and studying, but not a lot of focus on evangelism when I was there. I think that's changed a lot um, since then. And no great expectations for the students to do anything practical in that area. Um, I did try to reach out to my non-Christian friends around as a guy opposite the uh, other side of the street and uh, spent a lot of time with him uh, trying to, uh, to talk to him about Jesus. Uh, but not really had, I didn't really have much success in those early years. Then I came to Kingston and I found John Stott's little book, Basic Christianity, a real, real help to me. There are a lot of, when I came to Kingston, there's a lot of fringe people, particularly fringe young people. And I, I developed a course around this little book, John Stott's book, Basic Christianity, and used it with those fringe people. people. And by God's grace, well, he used it powerfully, actually, to, uh, to, and we saw a lot of people professing faith in Jesus through that book. I actually wrote to John Stott some years later and thanked him for that writing that little book because it is a real gem. If you ever get a chance, have you read, who's read John Stott's little book? It's a great little book, isn't it? It's probably, the language of it's probably a little hard now for young people, so I've actually moved on from that, but it's a gem. Also used Peter Woodcock's um, course, Scripture Under Scrutiny. It's actually the uh, 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 Romans 1 to 5 course that's around now, published by the uh, book company, I think it is, uh, in, in the UK. Great little course and saw people converted through that. And over the last five years, we've run Introducing God uh, in, in larger groups. And I think we've had around about 90 non-Christians. This is at the time, same time as we were planning churches, 90 non-Christians attending these courses, five or six courses that we ran, and, and a third of them, about 30 of them, are in our churches today, uh, thoroughly saved, which I think is absolutely marvellous and wonderful and, and thankful to God for. So that, that's, my, that's a bit of a potted history of my experience with evangelism. Uh, uh, what can we learn about my experiences? What can I pass on that will be of use to you? Um, I don't know whether you've ever come across the little book Grace, Grit and Gumption. It describes the ordinary, extraordinary work of God in Wales at the turn of the last century. It's the story of how God used three men, John Pugh and his two brothers Frank and Seth Joshua, to reach out with the gospel uh, to working class people in South Wales. And it's an extraordinary story. Their ministry was really based on the words of Jesus in Matthew 22. Go to the street corners, uh, go, to the, go and gather any, anybody who will come. In, 19, in 1891, they borrowed a tent and put it up on a waste piece of ground in Cardiff. And John Pugh and, and Seth Joshua were setting up that tent for an open air meeting. And one of the rough characters of the area passed by and he said to the Mallow governor, what's this, a boxing show? Well, there's going to be some fighting here, said Seth. When are you going to start? Tomorrow morning at 11am. Tomorrow's Sunday. Better the day, better the deed. Who's on? I've got to take the first round, said Seth. Who's with you? He's a, call, he's a chap called Belzebub. Never heard of him. Who's he? Oh, he's a smart one, I can tell you. Come tomorrow morning, I'll be, I'll be there, said the man. 
Strange to say, says Seth, he was there. And when I'd given out the first hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, he knew he'd been caught. Belzebub went over the ropes, all right, for the chap was converted that very morning. (laughs) Isn't that a lovely story? And uh, that was the beginning of a great surge of evangelistic activity in South Wales. And by God's grace, those three preachers became 30 preachers by 1907 and founded what was called the Forward Movement. Uh, And in 15 years, 48 churches were planted uh, with over 43,000 people attending. Isn't that a remarkable story? Wonderful work of God. So, So how do we maintain an evangelistic edge? in Australia today, in a culture which is so resistant to the gospel. And I'm going to give you five things uh, in this talk, and we'll break after each one, and I'd like to invite comments and questions and discussion. Five things. They all start with a P. That'll help you to remember them, and I'll just tell you what they are first. Firstly, perspective. Secondly, prayer. Thirdly, preparation. Fourthly, people. And fifthly, perseverance. Perspective, prayer, preparation, people, and perseverance. Firstly, a right perspective, because it's actually God's work. And the subheading under that, the first one is Jesus is in charge of this work. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at the Bible as we go through this. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And we see here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus briefing his disciples, don't we? Have a look at it there. Acts chapter 1, verse 2. He gives instructions to the men he's chosen, these 12 disciples. Verse 3, he shows himself to these men and gives many convincing proofs that he is alive and he tells them about the kingdom. Verse 4, he commands his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, he commissions them to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And verse 9 to 11, he ascends into heaven and promises to return and is promised to return. Now, it is pretty obvious from the, right from the beginning of the book of Acts who's actually in charge here. Jesus is in charge of the work. It's the same Jesus who lived and ministered and died in Palestine, the Jesus of the gospel. Now he's the living, resurrected and powerful Lord over all. And he's about to establish the forward movement of the gospel and build his church. And here, before he leaves to direct the affairs from headquarters... Selecting, instructing and commanding and commissioning his disciples to be his witnesses. Jesus is the head of the church, not the, not the bishops or the ministers or the elders. And he directs the, the battle for the building of the church and we are his, we're all his servants, his army. And how do we do the work? Well, in the power of the Spirit. So he promises his disciples in verse 8... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. In other words, the, the word, the word uh, in the Greek here, the, the word for power is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from, of course. And it means explosive power. 
This is the power that propels and guides and enables that forward movement of the gospel. And it's the explosive, dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came on these disciples and they began to speak. About what? Well, they began to speak about Jesus and the gospel and the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. That explosive power of the Holy Spirit entered the world and the church was born that first Pentecost. And what we see as we survey the book of Acts, and I didn't know Mikey was going to speak on that, but it's, it's lovely how it dovetails, is really astonishing. There's, there's, there's oppression right from the start. The leaders of the society are trying to stamp out this, this, this movement. There's brutal persecution of believers. There's trouble within. There's division and unfaithfulness and, and heresy. And yet, what do you see? How does Luke actually describe it? He describes it as the joyful, Holy Spirit-inspired expansion of the church throughout the whole known world. That's how Luke describes this, this work, from Jerusalem to Rome. The forward movement of the gospel, says Luke in this, is unstoppable. And that's what we're part of. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And here we are, in fact, in Australia, telling everybody about Jesus. That's what we want to do. That's what we are doing. We are his witnesses. And who is our head? Well, it's the ascended, powerful Christ. He's our head. What's our message? Well, it's, it's about him and him crucified. What's the power? The power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we go about it? Well, we go about it by speaking the word boldly, joyfully, confidently, sacrificially. Will there be trouble and persecution? Yes, there will be. But there'll also be great joy, won't there, as we see God's kingdom come. So that's the first thing. Jesus is in charge. The second thing that I want to say about this perspective is that Jesus does his work through the church. And I want to, turn, I want to ask you to turn with, with me to Isaiah chapter 60. And here Isaiah looks forward, of course, being the prophet, uh, to the time when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom and the work of the, the church is being described here. He gives us a, a really great and inspiring vision, doesn't he, of the church. And three things we see. Look at verses 1 and 3. And we'll just read it. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. And thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. So here, firstly, we have a wonderful picture of the beauty of the church. Now, it's, I know it's, that's hard to uh, sort of conceive as we look around sometimes at the, at the church. But here in Isaiah, God is promising to spread his light and his glory and his beauty and his majesty and his joy over the church so that the world will sort of run to be part of it. The future of the human race is in the church. Why? Because Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for the church to cleanse the church and to make her a radiant and glorious bride. When is the church like that? Well, when the people are filled with the presence of Christ. And what happens when we are 
aware of Christ and filled with his presence, when there's an intimacy between Christ and his church, well, God is exalted and risks are taken for the kingdom. The Bible is enjoyed and selfishness diminishes. Grace is practised and our convenience becomes less important. Prayer is loved and gossip dies. New people are included and cliques are resisted. There's a joy and laughter and hope and peace when Christ is fully present, is present with his church. And when the church looks like this, it actually starts to grab the attention of the world around it because the church is actually displaying the glory of Christ. So that's the first thing, the beauty of the church. The secondly, the purpose of the church. Isaiah shows us the great purpose of the church here. Look at verse 3 again. Nations will come into your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So God wants the church to be so attractive that she draws the nations and its leaders. Now, it's true that we are to go to the nations as well. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 28, uh, that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. And we are to do that and never stop doing that. But it's also true that God wants the nations to come into the church. Look how often Isaiah mentions it here in this chapter. Just run through these verses with me. Uh, Verse 3, nations will come into your light. Verse 4, all assemble and come to you. Verse 5, the wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Verse 6, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense. Verse 10, foreigners will build your walls and kings will serve you. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon will come to you. Verse 14, the sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. It's embarrassing, isn't it? The honour that God puts on his people. We know we don't deserve that honour at all, but he puts his glory and blessing on the church so that we can spread his goodness throughout a dying world and draw the nations in. And that's God's strategy for world redemption. He places his glory on the church so that she can build a new human society, a new culture of salvation, a new people filled with the spirit of God, transformed to be like Christ. And that's what God promised at the time of Isaiah, and that's what we see unfold in history after the coming of Christ. The book of Acts tells us again how it all started. And listen to what it says there. Verse, uh, Acts chapter 2, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts chapter 5, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Acts chapter 6, The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a number of, of priests came to faith. Acts chapter 9, The church grew in numbers. Acts 16, The church grew daily in numbers. Think about the explosive growth also of the church in history and in the world today, in Africa and and China and India. Hundreds of millions of people have come to Christ in the last 50 years. It's extraordinary. God is bringing the nations in. And it's what he'll be doing until Christ returns. That's a perspective we need to have. And at the end of the Bible, when the book of Revelation winds it all up and launches us into eternity, as it were, the Apostle John looks up and sees a vision, and it's in Revelation chapter 7. He sees this sea of humanity worshipping God, 
a vast number of people that no one can count. Here is the human race in an unnumbered multitude, beyond statistics, reflecting and radiating the glory of God. So that's the purpose of the church. Thirdly, the obligation of the church in Isaiah 60. The church is attractive because God places his glory on her and Christ lives in her and God makes her attractive so that she might draw the nations into her. So what? Well, God places an obligation on the church and it's there in verse 1. At the time Isaiah wrote, the Israelites were demoralised. They'd just come back from exile and they were a weak persecuted remnant. And what does God say to them? Verse 1. Arise and shine. Notice when God commands us, he also brings it about. It's like Jesus' command to the leper. In Mark 1, Jesus says to the leper, be clean. How can this man clean himself? Well, he can't, can he? But the command told him what the Lord was doing for him. And in the same way here, God says to the church, arise and shine for your light has come. It's what God is doing for us. The world is stumbling around in darkness, but the light of the world has come. And he told us so, didn't he? I am the light of the world. And then he says to us, let your light, you be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And today Jesus comes and says to his church, the world is groaning under a curse of sin and death, but I am building a new humanity through my death and resurrection and I want to show you, you to show that dying world about who I am so that people would join that new humanity. Arise and shine. Be radiant with my grace and goodness and glory. Be radiant with my love. What does that mean in practice? Well, it first, firstly means that we will love the church, surely. We will always speak well of the church. None of this, I love Jesus, but I hate the church stuff that's circulating around. None of that. That's shooting your evangelism in the foot, really, isn't it? We love the church. We give our best to church. Of course, there are problems. The church is full of sinners. But we love the church. And if you love the church, knowing its glory and destiny, then your life changes, doesn't it? Your weekly schedule and your budget and your energy will move from lesser things to the things that will build the church. The one obligation of the church on earth is to rise and shine the light of Christ in a dark world. And then thirdly, under the right perspective, it's all for the glory of God, isn't it? It's all for the glory of God. Jesus is in charge. Jesus does his work through the church. It's all for the glory of Christ and for, of God. In Revelations 4 and 5, John gives us that window into heaven at the end of time and we hear the angels and we hear the 24 elders and we hear thousands of thousands of angels and every creature in heaven on earth surveying the saving work of God, the wonderful saving work of God and singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. It's all to the glory of God. So that's the perspective we need. And I love the comment somebody made earlier in the conference. Yes, we need to look at the detail of what we're doing, but we also need to draw back and look at, show people the big picture. And we need to keep showing people that big picture. 
drawing them into that perspective. It's God's work. Christ is in charge. He does his work through the church. He does it for the glory of God. Keep that perspective in your preaching, teaching, and evangelism. So, so what? Well, we need that right perspective because we're not in charge. Boy, that's liberating, isn't it? That's great. I'd have to take on that responsibility. That's a great relief. And we shouldn't feel a sense of pressure. We do sometimes, I know. And, and a burden and, and thinking that I have to do it. You know, I'm justified by my faith. But I also live by that faith. Also in my evangelism. Justification by faith is a great doctrine. It, it, it stops us taking on stuff which we can't possibly do. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is. Not only that, because it's God's work and he's in charge, it gives me great confidence. I've got great confidence in Jesus. Do you? Our people should have. He does his work through the church. So, first of all, don't be embarrassed by the church. Surely not going to help your evangelism if you're embarrassed by the church. And think about ways of doing doing it together. Think about how your church shines the light of Christ. And thirdly, it's all to the glory of God. Don't dare rob God of glory. Big noting on conversions and numbers. and Don't dare rob God of glory. Any questions and comments on that first P, perspective? Comments, questions? Thoughts? Everybody's really happy with that one? <laughs> good, good. All right, we'll press on then. Secondly, prayer, the priority of prayer, because prayer is actually the work. And uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. It's a wonderfully instructive story there in Acts chapter 4. Um, the apostles Peter and John uh, heal a crippled man in the name of Jesus. I think that's in chapter 3 there. And are threatened by the authorities and thrown into prison for talking publicly about Jesus. And when they're released uh, in chapter 23, uh, verse 23 I should say, when they're released the whole church, the whole church note gets together to pray. They pray about this particular crisis, but they don't ask note for personal safety. They actually ask for boldness, boldness to continue to talk about Jesus, verse 29. And what is the result? Well, they're all filled with the Spirit, verse 31, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And right through history... Whenever the church has been renewed and strengthened, there's been one consistent factor. That hasn't been small groups. It hasn't even been expository preaching, vital as that is, really, really important. It hasn't been miracles or healings or tongues. It's been persistent corporate 
kingdom-centred prayer. Spurgeon once said, Without prayer, what are the church's agencies but the stretching out of a dead man's arm or the lifting up of a blind man's eye, lid of a blind man's eye? Only when the Holy Spirit comes is there any life and force and power. And so we need to pray. Well, what do we pray for? Well, firstly, pray for God's presence. See, people, uh, God's people long for more of God's presence. You know, the psalmist expresses it so well, I thirst for the living God, says David. Christian history tells us, even Moses, that spiritual giant, asked God, show me more of your glory. In other words, I want a greater sense of your presence. I want to see you and sense you. I want you to be more than just a concept to me. I want you to be a reality to me and to our church. And, you know, spiritual dryness leads to evangelistic apathy, doesn't it? And we need God to be tangibly present with us. And so we pray not just for my needs or your needs, but for the grace to confess and repent and for more of the glory of God manifest in our midst so that we sense his presence and it is tangible and real for us. So pray for his presence in and through your evangelistic work particularly, but more than that, for your own growth in the gospel. Secondly, pray for God's kingdom to come. And uh, that's obvious, isn't it? Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, pray your kingdom come. And that expresses to God a desire and a passion for the flourishing of the church, doesn't it? If you're focused on God's kingdom, if that's a priority in your prayer life, then you'll want to see the church flourish. you want to see others join her. you want to see it grow and mature. You want to see it at peace. You want to see it beautiful, as I've talked about before. You want the gossip to stop. You want the lethargy gone. You want mechanical worship to be transformed. You want to see the church be what is supposed to be, vibrant and spirit-filled and loving, boldly speaking the word of God so others might come to know Jesus. And so we pray for the kingdom to come. It's a command, a command of Jesus. And then thirdly, pray extraordinary prayers, prayers that are bold and specific. When you read the prayers of Abraham and David and Daniel, you know, those guys didn't know what we know. They, don't know. they didn't know God's plans and grace in the way that we know them, looking back at the cross and at the work of Jesus. And yet it's amazing that they actually argue with God. They actually wrestle with God in prayer. Think of Abram talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah. God is about to destroy the cities in their, uh, for their wickedness. And Abraham says to God, will you spare the city for 50 righteous People. What about 40? What about 30? Abraham keeps coming back. He's bold. And the Christians in Acts chapter 4, they're facing persecution and opposition. If they talk to anyone about Jesus and they come together, the whole church, and what do they pray for? Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. They ask for boldness to keep speaking about Jesus. It's bold and specific. 
And we need to go beyond the ordinary Christian life and join together in bold, specific prayer, asking God to fill us with his spirit, asking God to do in us and through us what we can't possibly do ourselves. There's a great story about Alexander the Great and one of his key generals. The the general's daughter was being married and Alexander offered to contribute to the cost of this wedding Uh, And I know it'll be expensive, he said to the man, but just ask for what you want and I'll fix it up. The general thought about it for a few days and wrote out a request for a huge sum of money. And when Alexandra's treasurer saw it, he went to Alexandra and said to him, he's asking for a ridiculous sum of money. Surely you're not going to give that to him. You're probably going to cut off his head for being such a ridiculous, having such a ridiculous request. And Alexander said, give it to him. By such an outlandish request, he shows that he believes that I am both rich and generous. Our God is rich and generous, isn't he? And that ought to encourage us to pray extraordinary prayers. And so we maintain an evangelistic edge, uh, firstly by having a right perspective and bringing that before our people often and secondly by making prayer a priority and again it was linked very beautifully to the previous speaker a couple of sessions ago the guy who was doing the surveys the amount of time pastors pray will determine how the church grows it's, it's, it's well it's the bible tells us doesn't it and so we pray for God's presence with us so that we will have an impact when we speak the gospel. Christ in us, we need his power, only he can save in and through us. We pray for God's kingdom to come, and that's what God wants us to do, and we take that seriously, and so we pray desperately for that to happen, and we pray extraordinary prayers because our God is an extraordinary God. He is a living, active, generous, gracious God. We're so tempted, aren't we, to do evangelism in our own strength. I'm so tempted to do evangelism in my own strength. And we all know that it's actually folly. But there's some sort of ego thing that's operating in our hearts all the time. But the one thing that helps us most in battling that is the sort of prayer that keeps us dependent and expectant on what God will do. We have a trickle of conversions in our churches down in Kingston because we probably offer a trickle of prayer. How much time do you in your church spend in time, time in prayer and in prayer meetings? And it's God's work. We can't change anybody's heart. Any questions and comments on that prayer? I mean, I'd, I'd like to ask, how much do you guys all have prayer meetings in your church, praying for this particular thing? Any comments on prayer? Hmm. Yeah, that's our experience as well. We might have regular prayer meetings, but they're not well attended. You just grab the, mic, grab the mic. I find a lot of the uh, prayer meetings that we have at our church are a bit more like a magic prayer. You know, like everyone's happy to pray for things to happen, 
people to magically come into the church, but they actually don't want to actually do anything. They just It's like they throw it up to God and hope for the best. Um, how would you, any advice on how to sort of find a balance in that? Was that getting off the so track? So what are they actually praying for? Basically, Lord, just bring people into the church or Lord, you know, grow the church, but that's all they're doing. Yeah. You know, they're just praying it. Yeah, they're well, not... I mean, prayer needs to be, as I said, specific. So what we do in our, in our small group that, that I'm, I'm leading at Bay is to actually list down the names of the people who we know and would like to reach. And we actually pray for those people specifically. Okay. It's got to be specific. And, you know, when you actually start praying for people, it actually brings on you an obligation. It starts to bring pressure on you, if you yeah. like, an obligation to actually make some effort to talk to them. Yeah. So if you're, you're actually praying for somebody week in, week out, then, you know, God will give you those opportunities to, to actually have conversations with them. You'll be thinking about how can I actually... Uh, you know, put my testimony to them or talk to them about Jesus in some way. Yeah. Just. We've actually found that with prayer meetings, if you don't provide structure... We've actually found with prayer meetings that if you don't don't have some structure and also break it up a little bit and, and make it interesting <laughs> not i know that's a bit silly to say but unless we do that we we found that people won't come to prayer meetings because you know people feel a little bit odd if they don't know people very well and then you have say if you've got 10 people you've got two people that do the majority of the praying and then nobody else prays and all those types of things so recently we we wanted to lift the profile of the fact that we're a praying church we were preaching through Luke's gospel. Jesus prayed all night. Um, some young people in our church said, hey, you know, why don't we have an all-night prayer meeting? And uh, I thought, don't really want to do that, but um, <laughs> these people, these young people were keen. Um, and so one thing led to another, and we had an all-night prayer meeting, and we had about 35 people come to it. So it was the best best thing that we've ever done in our church life in the last seven years I've been a part of our church it was absolutely fantastic not all 35 made made it through to sunrise but we had a a good a really good night of prayer as a church and it was fantastic but it was a little bit unusual um so it was a that that actually lifted the profile of prayer and that's led to a number of other prayer meetings that have come since then that have been very helpful yeah excellent yeah it's good to to actually preach regularly on prayer as well, obviously, and, uh, and teach people about the importance of prayer and so on. And uh, that, that's also helpful. I think prayer and evangelism are both highly spiritual activities. And that's why we find it difficult. But we need to press into that. Any other comments on, on that? From my experience, part of the issue with prayer meetings is that you can spend um, half an hour, three quarters of an hour talking about things and then five minutes praying, um, whereas there's a real need for a balance there. Yeah. Also, um, I like uh, the previous uh, gentleman's comments about 
uh, breaking things up. A prayer meeting doesn't need to be Tuesday night every week, you know, every year. And that's what we've done and this is what the church is all about. But it can be um, prayer, it can be, uh, uh, you know, our life should be prayer. Uh, those spontaneous times of prayer with someone. Um, men meeting early in the morning and praying. Um, fellowship groups really focusing on times of prayer. Um, before services, groups, uh, before Sunday morning services, uh, groups coming together to pray, stuff like that. I think Spurgeon uh, took someone downstairs to the basement of his church and said, This is where the action really happens. This is the powerhouse of the church. Yeah, the powerhouse yeah, of the right. church. Yeah. Um, so, those sorts of things are, I think, are yeah. useful to talk about, think about. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, the more prayer in, in a whole pile of settings, the better. I think though that Acts 4 does actually give us a picture of the whole congregation coming together to pray and I think there's something about that that we ought to take a little more seriously I think uh, the whole church coming together to pray uh, and my experience in Kingston is that is that people find it really difficult even though they've been in the church for years and years and years to come together to pray and there's something lacking there, and we really need to pray about it. <laughs> I think our problem partly is that we are not leading as leaders to share our vision to have a praying people. Mm, yeah. And so people aren't sure what really is our our real focus and goal, even if we have to close certain departments of the church work, this is the one we have to really be engaged in. Yeah. And until they sort of connect with that and we lead and make it the priority, I don't think it's ever going to be. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Well, we need to give ourselves uh, to prayer if we're going to be... Uh, maintaining an evangelistic edge the third one is is proper preparation and there are three things I want to mention under that the first one is understanding the culture we live in and again we had a wonderful presentation um, uh, just before from Tim um, we need to understand who we're seeking to reach and a guy called Mark McCrindle he's a social researcher I, think a sec I don't know whether he's a Christian or I don't think so. He says this about the Australian culture uh, in respect to the effectiveness of the church reaching it. it uh, he calls it the hard soil of Australia. Uh, his description of that culture is that it's critical and cynical, that it's fast-paced and time-poor, that it's fragmented, multicultural and global in its orientation, that it's informed and savvy and streetwise, that it's pr pragmatic rather than self-reflective. That's his, from his research, uh, his, his sort of brief description of Australian culture. How does that inform our evangelism then? Well, first of all, I think, to me, as I think about these things, it... it, it it, it, it informs us in the way that our lives and community life needs to be authentic. Maybe that's obvious. 
the way we live needs to match the gospel message. Are your people able to... So, so if the church is presenting, and uh, probably shouldn't have the microphone on, but the church in Blacktown at the moment that I'm going to is, uh, is not presenting an authentic message and their evangelism is, hasn't been anywhere for probably 10 years or more, their evangelistic effort. There's not that, that genuineness and authenticity about what that church is, is about. And I think we need to think about that and how we are presenting ourselves in the culture. S- secondly, my reflection is that the personal testimony is obviously important. And the question comes to me, are your people able to give a coherent personal testimony that actually brings glory to Christ and shows that the gospel actually works in their lives. Are they ab- able to say that? They may, they may, that may be the case, but can they give a testimony of that? Sure, we've got lots of fantastic Christians, but can they actually speak that testimony uh, to their non-Christian friends? Thirdly, uh, particularly in preaching, people want uh, substance and clarity, not just emotion and stories. And I think we need to work, continue to work, I need to work as a preacher really hard at that substance and clarity, not just emotion and stories. And fourthly, people want to participate and experience Christian life and community, and so you, you try to bring them into gospel community life. And I think you try to do that as early as possible, notwithstanding the fact that that may present some dangers uh, to your gospel community, your small group. And we need to be creative there, don't we? And I'm the least creative person around, so I just have to read lots of books and get ideas from other people, so that's what I do uh, when it comes to evangelism. So that's the first thing. You need to understand the culture in which we live uh, there's the hard soil of Australia. Uh, secondly, within that, there's doing demographic studies. And, and when, when I look at an area in which I am seeking to reach, I just uh, get some... I've got a guy uh, in Kingston who does some, draws some statistics from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It's a simple one-pager. You can't see it, I'm sorry, but you can come up and have a look at me afterwards. If you, if you want. Some selected demographics. I've done one for Blacktown, for example. Um, there's some general de- demographics on age and birthplace of people. Uh, so you see the ethnicity uh, in Blacktown, for example. 70% of people are Australians. And the next largest group is uh, from English origin. And then the groups diminish after that. This is probably 2006 census. Then there's some selected average. Median age of people, of persons in Blacktown is 32. A median individual income is $473. Median family income is $1,188. This is per week. And so on. Average household size is three. Then you've got some family characteristics. Uh, Couples, family with children. Couple, family without children. One parent families, other families. And so... You work through that. You've got some marital status statistics. Married, 49%. Never married, 33%. Separated, divorced, 11%, and so on. Widowed, 9, 5%. Uh, 
Dwelling characteristics. How many people own their home? 32% of people in Blacktown own their home. Um, Occupation. 15% are clerical and admin. 19% are professionals. Technicians and trades workers are 14%. Labourers, 10%. Machinery operators, 6%. Sales workers, 9%. Managers, 13%. It doesn't look to me like it's a blue-collar blue-collar area based on these statistics. Obviously, it's a high, fair percentage of blue-collar workers, but they don't seem to be the majority. So maybe the demographic in Blacktown's changed a bit. Uh, industry of employment. Uh, schools and education, 4%. Hospitals, 3%. Cafes and takeaways and restaurants, 3.6% and then religious affiliation. So we do a bit of a a sampling of those. Just have a look at who's living in your area and get a little bit of an idea of the shape of the community. Read the local papers to see what's happening and think of ways in which church members can actually serve in the community. At Hewenville, uh, we, for example, is a very simple thing. We put on a free sausage sizzle down there at the annual quadrathlon in Hewenville. And we get lots of people asking, why are you doing this? That's pretty simple, isn't it? So you have an opportunity to, to talk about uh, Jesus and the gospel and the work of the, and the life of the church. And so this area of understanding the culture is important and, and you, can, you, you can't actually spend too much time in it. It's something that, that sort of interests me, but I've got to stop <laughs> going too deeply into it. Uh, spinning your wheels and reading and researching. Do some of it for sure. It's important, but don't overdo it. We don't want the culture to drive evangelism, but we want the gospel to drive evangelism, don't we? So uh, you've got to do some of that. Any comments on that? Any, any experiences in that area of, of, of understanding the culture and demographics? Obviously, the previous speaker, Tim, he, he gave us a lot of stuff, really good stuff to think about. Is that what you have? You guys done demographics in the area that you're sort of working? Yeah, most of you have. Yeah. How else do you find out about the town or area that you're you're serving in? Sorry. The problem is the breakdown from the members of our churches into the community, unless the pastor is doing it all, which we can't. No. If they're not involved, it's going nowhere. The pastor's got to do some. Yes, oh yeah. So he leads in that. But, um, yeah, and and you're right, if the pastor's not doing any, then it, it probably won't happen. Uh, but what, what are you saying is people are not connecting with the, the culture? The, the people are not either fo- are either not following the pastor, yeah. assuming the pastor's doing some, yeah. or they're not seeing it as relevant and there's no connect, no yeah. connection between him leading yeah. and them following in evangelism. He's not a leader if no one's following him. No, that's true. That's true. I mean, that's true yeah. for all of us. Yeah. Well, I think my next point is that you need to cultivate an, e- an ethos of outreach in the church. So I'll, I'll, talk, about, I'll talk, yes. talk about that in a moment. But I'm just, I'm just talking about how do we gather, any ideas on gathering and understanding the culture. I mean, we, we live in it, 
I think we all tend to have some blind spots to the weaknesses and strength of our culture because we're actually part of it. It's actually quite difficult, I think, to stand back. One of the things that's been really a, a blessing to me personally was at Kingston, we had for, uh, for a period of some five or, or six years, we had a lot of Sudanese people come into the congregation. And I tell you, that really helped me understand the poverty of community compared to, to, to what happens in our churches in some places. Some, some churches do it better than others. They have a rich and deep, and I mean, you could probably talk about that better than I can because it's African culture, rich and deep uh, community, sense of community. And they really live life together. And that, that actually helped me understand that, that whole area much better, living with and, and, and eating and, and mixing with those people for that time. Um, yeah, I found that session like it was so. It was really, really interesting on um, what Tim did this morning. But like at the same time as well, like I just, it's almost like overwhelming in terms of just the stats and how bad the church is going, all that kind of stuff. But I just, for me, the big thing is just reminding that behind, behinding ourselves, reminding ourselves that behind the stats are just genuine people, and just you know just. Christ's love to be able to connect with people and that. And I, I don't know, that's just something that you kind of can be overwhelmed by stats and trends and plots and graphs and how, what's influencing the world. And it's really good to be able to understand their worldview. Yeah, I don't know, just, just reminding yourself. Like when, when you get out on the street, stats go out the door and you just want to connect with the person. So. A simple love for people goes yeah. a long way, doesn't it? An and acceptance of people no matter who they are. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. That, that, like you said before, you get that love in just spending time in prayer. So yeah. that thank was you. heaps helpful, thank that, you. For that point on prayer. Yeah, thank you. Okay, cultivating an ethos of outreach in the church. Most, most Christians understand that um, evangelism is the church's work, but, but many believe that it's one of the things the church ought to do. Um, and above all, the church should worship that's often the response that I've had from, from people in my own circles. And somehow that response tends to somehow uh, push evangelism and mission off, off to the edge. And um, it's, it's unhelpful. It, I found John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, really helpful in that. Uh, because he, he agrees but turns it around. And he says this, Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. But then he says... Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. And I found that really, really helpful, that comment. How does that create a, an ethos of outreach in the church? Well, our preaching and teaching, we preach Christ and him crucified. What exactly do we preach? Well, we preach a passion for Christ and his glory. Jesus, as I said, is our ascended Lord. Uh, he's seated at the right hand of God and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And um, John Piper says again in his book, no one will be able to ri rise to the magnificence of the missionary cause who does not feel the magnificence of Christ. God has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. 
Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with this. See, our ideas of Jesus are are often too small, aren't they? And uh, preaching through Colossians is a great book to to, to bring that out. And, uh, you know, we, we, we always worship a smaller Jesus than what he actually is. All of us. And John Piper's just saying, you need to get a good grip of how big this Christ is who, who is in charge and who's leading his church if you're going to be effective in, in, in missionary work. So a passion for Christ and his glory. And secondly, a confidence in Christ and his vision because he has said, hasn't he, I will build my church and, and he is doing it. And 2,000 years, years after the cross and the resurrection, uh, we not only know this truth intellectually and we read it in the word, but we actually see this truth working out in the world. And that's been God's plan from the start and he's been faithful to it and he will do it. So we need to have a confidence in Christ and his vision. And, his, and, his vision. and thirdly, a love for Christ and his lost sheep. If you really love Christ, then you love his people and also those he is yet to save. Uh, Jesus says in John 10, I have other sheep not of this pen and I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. And that's an encouragement for evangelism, isn't it? Surely that's an encouragement for evangelism. They will listen to the voice of Jesus. Yes, there'll be those who won't listen, but there are those sheep who will listen to the voice of Jesus and so we need to proclaim him. The other reason we love the lost is because they too are image bearers of God and there's enormous potential in every human being, especially when they come, particularly when they come under the authority of Christ. And we have a positive, hopeful stance towards every sinner. They are not the enemy, Ephesians 6. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities. And so Christians are ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, And the love of Christ compels us to persuade men and to convince them of Jesus because he died for sin so that they would no longer live for themselves but for him and so they are called to be reconciled to God. And we need to love them with the love of Christ. It's a radical, sacrificial love uh, that's prepared to be vulnerable. There's a lovely story uh, about D.L. Moody, the 19th century evangelism, who before he went into full-time ministry, ran a Sunday school in Chicago in his early years. Let me read to you this story. One of his teachers came to him seriously ill. What's the matter, said Moody. Well, I've been bleeding again at the lungs. I suppose I'm going to die. The man trembled and he was so upset that Moody asked him, are you afraid to die? No, sir, I'm not afraid, but I'm anxious for my class my Sunday school class, I've failed them. Not one of them has been led to Jesus and now I haven't the strength to do it now. There's a love for for Christ and and lost people. Moody knew the class. They were girls of 12 to 16 years old. Most of them were a frivolous set, he says. They kept gadding around in the class, laughing and carrying on all the while, even in my face. After a pause, Moody, Moody said, suppose you go around and tell them how you feel. I will go with you in the carriage if you want. And so off they went to the slums of Chicago. At the tenement house of one of the girls, the teacher called her and said faintly, I've come just to ask you to come to the Saviour. The girl listened wide-eyed as he told her that he must leave Chicago and would die. 
as he explained why she should as he explained why she should put her trust in Christ. And then said Moody, he prayed as I've never heard before. And the girl in tears promised to settle the question then and there. The two men mounted the carriage again and rambled off to another girl's home. And three or four calls later, he was, this man was exhausted and Moody returned him to his home. At the end of ten days, the teacher came to Moody, his face shining. The last of my class has yielded herself to Christ. The great and vital question of their lives is settled. They've accepted the Saviour. Well, that's, a, that's a radical love for Jesus and for the lost, for his lost sheep. And we always speak as dying people to dying people. I don't know who said that, but somebody said that, don't we? We always speak as dying people to dying people. And so we need to, our people need to have that, that perspective. Um, thirdly, I've got here plant, plan to plant as many churches as possible. The other way to grow an ethos of evangelism, and that certainly happened in our congregation there, is by planting as many churches as possible. Now I understand that not all churches are in a position to plant. I'm, I'm saying over time. We read in Acts that Paul and his team went round and evangelised towns and he gathered converts and he discipled them and strengthened them in the word and he raised up leaders and he appointed elders in each place and he handed over the ministry to them and off he went to the next place. And he does it over and over and over again. And he encourages his apprentices, Timothy and Titus, to do the same thing. And the challenge of such a dynamic and team-oriented and other people-focused ministry approach where it's not about me and about my ministry, is, I think, something that's largely eluded the church in the West. And Geneva Push is an organisation that's trying to recapture some of that. Vision 100 is trying to recapture some of that. And we need to recover it. Church plants, by nature, are... I'm probably preaching the converted here. By nature, are evangelistic. They move into a new area. They focus on the mission of Christ... And they want people see, want desperately to see people saved. That sort of energy creates an evangelistic edge. Tim Keller says in his Redeemer Church Planning Manual, anyone read that manual? It's a really good. He says this: dozens of studies confirm that the average new church gains most of its members, 60 to 80 percent, from the ranks of people who are not attending any worshiping body, while churches over 10 to 15 years of age gain 80 or 90 percent of new members by transfer from other congregations. This means that the average new congregation will bring six to eight times more new people into the life of the body of Christ than the older congregation of the same size. And then he asks the question, why is this so? As a congregation ages, powerful internal institutional pressures lead it to allocate most of its resources and energy towards the concerns of its members and constituents rather than those outside its walls. Older congregations, therefore, have the stability and steadiness many people thrive on and need. But new churches of necessity are forced to focus far more of their energies on the needs of its non-members and become much more sensitive to the sensibilities of non-believers. There is also a cumulative effect. In the first two years of our Christian walk, we have far more close face-to-face relationships with non-Christians than we do later. Thus, new Christians attract non-believers 
to services five to ten times more than long-term Christian. New believers beget new believers. What does that mean practically? The only way to bring lots of new Christians into the body of Christ in a permanent way is to plant new churches. This is the biblical strategy. So far, Tim Keller. So plan to plant as many churches as possible. I think someone said earlier, every church that's ever existed has been planted. And the question's a good one. Why did we stop? And in, in, in our context, in my context, in the Christian Reformed churches, we planted lots of churches in the first um, 20 years of our existence. And then we stopped. From 1950 to 1970, we planted 50 or so churches. And yes, we gathered Dutch migrants together and planted those churches, but then we stopped. And we've only just in the last seven or eight years started thinking, maybe ten years, started thinking more seriously about planting churches again. And we actually have started, and we've got sort of 15 churches at the moment in train in being, uh, being planted or in, in some stage of being planted. So plant as many churches as possible. Any questions and comments on that one? That section. The proper preparation. Understanding the culture, cultivating an ethos of outreach for the church. Uh, that's a passion for Christ, uh, confidence in Christ, and a love for Christ and his people, and plan to plant as many churches as possible. Speaking to the converted. Okay, fourthly, a focus on, on people. I was speaking to somebody uh, at lunchtime who said, oh, we've been given a, a building in the middle of Melbourne or some space in the middle of Melbourne to plant uh, and, and the, you know, a free, free space next to the railway station in Melbourne. Um, and we think it's a great opportunity to plant a church there. But um, the focus there was on, on the building. Uh, we need to focus on, on, more on the people. If you don't have the people uh, to, to do a church plant with, then you know, buildings are easily found, uh, not easily, but comparatively easily. People are what we need as a resource. So the focus needs to always be on, on people more than programs, buildings, and so on. It's about making disciples, and it really is a simple biblical strategy, and I love uh, Trellis and the Vine and what Cole Marshall and Tony Payne have been doing. Uh, strategy for multiplication is very, very simple. Any church can do it, big or small. You don't need flashy programs, just well-trained, spiritually fired-up people. And that is the same for the evangelistic effort. And I'm looking forward to doing that course, uh, the, the, the new course that's out, the course of your life, uh, having a look at that material. Think evangelism uh, in terms of people in three levels, of, uh, three levels in the church. One, firstly, at the individual level. Identify those people who, have a, um, an, uh, uh, who are evangelists. Identify them and release them from other work in the church and get them to, to, to do their evangelistic work. We've got a lady at, uh, at Bay Christian Church who is, who is really, really good at that. And she's brought several non-Christians into the church. She's just wonderful. She's a hairdresser. And she connects with lots of people through her hairdressing and, and links well with them and, and has brought them to Christ. 
and it's wonderful. And we should be allowing her and encouraging her and saying, this is your ministry, which we do. Uh, this is your gift that God's given you in ministry. So I try to identify those people who are really good at that, that sort of work and release them to do that and encourage them and support them in that. Beyond that, encourage people, obviously, to do things like pray specifically for their non-Christian contacts and contact... Have, and, and encourage them to have that contact with those non-Christians in ordinary life. I really love this book. Uh, it's on the book table, I think. Uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, Everyday Church. Let me just give you the chapter headings. Uh, life at the Margins. It's, it's based on uh, some studies from 1 Peter. Everyday Community, Everyday Pastoral Care, Everyday Mission, Everyday Evangelism. It's basically saying... Um, in your ordinary everyday life, God gives you heaps of opportunities. Use those, pick those up, make, make the best of them and, and use them evangelistically, but be intentional about what you're doing in those things. Look for opportunities to share your... So uh, pray for non-Christians, connect with non-Christians in ordinary life. Look for opportunities to share uh, your testimony with them. Invite people to an Introducing God course you can run those sort of programs either one-to-one or in a group and so on. So that's at the individual level. Those are things that individuals can do to be evangelistically active. At the small group level, encourage your group again to pray together for each other's non-Christian friends. There's a little bit of an accountability that happens when you start praying for each other's non-Christian friends and asking how's it going and so on. Uh, have social times together. What we do quite regularly, once a month, is we organise a social event with our, with, our, uh, with our life group or a small group and we try to invite non-Christian people into that social event. We do that every month, once a month. And we are praying for these people, we're connecting them in uh, socially. Another thing you can do as a group is serve in some community events. Uh, uh, these Christian Church... Uh, actually has done a lot of work in a community garden and so they're linking with a whole pile of non-Christians that are interested in the community garden project and uh, so they're serving in that way and these people are asking the same sort of question you know, why are you doing this? So there's an opportunity and they can see the love of Christ through that community Uh, the triathlon or the quadrathlon barbecue mentioned earlier the Blackman's Bay Fair we will go there and, and, uh, you know serve in some ways. The three and a half days in Margate, these are all events that we've been involved with as, as church communities and serving. And invite non-Christians into the community life of the, of the small group. And again, this, this book is very useful in unpacking that. Uh, and then uh, what's really vital in this is your small group leaders need to be trained in, in how to do these things effectively and well because they're leading the groups and so you need to provide them with good training uh, so that they can actually uh, uh, help their people and lead their people in these things. So that's the individual, small group level and then the large group meeting. Obviously evangelistic preaching, uh, the gospel's always got to be there but clarity and substance. Services that are relevant and compelling in other words, reducing the jargon, uh, welcoming really well, being an authentic and inclusive community, those things uh, you work on intentionally in your large group meetings, looking after newcomers and, and touching base with them afterwards 
Anybody that comes to your church, make sure you follow up on them um, and, and invite them to lunch if that's at all possible. Involvement, uh, participation and involvement of people, do that early in some ways. When new people connect with your church, get them involved uh, in, in, in serving in some way early. So it's about making disciples and again the uh, thinking about where people are at spiritually and that's been picked up by Tim as well and uh, I've used stuff from Peter Bolt's book uh, where he, he lists out things like so, so you, you, you look at every person in your community and you, and you say and particularly the, the, the people on the fringe and the non-Christians that are connected to the life groups and you, you, you say where are they at? Is it at the point of just raising awareness or at the point of initial contact, or at the point of pre-evangelism or evangelism, or follow-up, or nurture, or training. So you've got that spread of categories, and you put everybody under that, and you see exactly where they're at, and you try to intentionally grow them. It's, I think it's the, the grid thing that Tim had up before and uh, Andrew's using. And it helps you focus your ministry to them, uh, and you do this for non-Christians as well, or people that you've got contact with, uh, it helps you focus your ministry to them and you find resources to, to sort of, that will meet their needs. And there are also a number of different evangelistic courses. Not every evangelistic course suits everyone. The Introducing God course uh, is no longer a, a course that we use at the moment. I think it's sort of been through the bell curve and, and died. We've run it seven times and, as I said, we had 90 people through it. And it's been wonderfully used by God, but it's, it's no longer a course that we use. The last one we ran, we had very, very little take-up. So you, you need to introduce something new. Um, and we're going to probably use that Romans 1-5 to course, which has been repackaged a little bit. Incidentally, I think Dominic's producing a new version. Does anyone know when that's coming out? New version of Introducing God? It'd be interesting to look at that, updating that. And try to move people to the next level through those sorts of things. And then some challenges in evangelism. Um, meeting the, ch- the changing social needs. Again, this is a little bit of cultural thinking. Um, some people, uh, most people have in Australia have their basic needs met. So the state is doing a really good job on welfare these days. And so you don't come across a lot of people, although there are some, um, who just need handouts. Most of those people who need handouts... Um, most of them, not all, um, uh, uh, it's because they're not managing their money that they do have well. Um, so uh, we, we basically have, we're, we're the world, one of the wealthiest countries in the world and most people in Australia, even if they're on a fairly low wage, uh, are better off than 90% of the population of the rest of the world. So we're doing, that, that's, that's, that's okay. But people suffer from, what do they suffer from most? Social isolation, don't they? social isolation in our, in our culture. The fastest growing uh, household demographic in Australia is the single person household. And people are living on their own a lot more. How, do we, how are we going to reach them? We're actually not that good as churches. Well, my experience in my church, i put it that way, you might have another experience, uh, at, at, at looking after singles. I was really uh, encouraged by a, a situation at Blacktown where there was a single mum uh, with her daughter that came into the church and one of the families actually adopted her into their family along with their other four kids that they had. 
and said, well, well because her fa- she didn't have any family. Uh, she has got family, but they're sort of estranged and overseas. And uh, Anyway, long story. But they, they adopted her into their family, and so she actually goes to all their, all their family events and joins in with it. I think that's fantastic. It's quite a sacrifice for the kids and for the, the, the family that's sort of adopting them. We need to be creative uh, about accommodating the singles. So, so meeting the change, changing social needs, maybe there are other change, any comments on, on social changes and, and how that's impacting the life of the church and the ability of the church to serve in the, in the community? Any other creative thoughts on, on that? Our witness is easily, secondly, meeting changing social needs. Our witness is easily compromised by our lifestyle, isn't it? Because we're actually in this culture, which is, uh, as I said, fast-paced and time-poor, and many of us actually actually suffer uh, of those cultural problems. Uh, and, And the rat race and not having time available and materialism... Uh, is really affecting the life of the church, isn't it? Don't you think? Is that your experience as well, that that's actually affecting the life of the church? What do you do about that? We're encouraging more and more of our guys who are actually you know, working like this in the workforce to actually go to a four-day week so they can spend more time um, you know, training their, their, you know, spend more time with their children and training them up in, in godliness, but also serving the gospel in, in whatever ways the Lord calls them. And, and praise God, there are five or so guys in our network who've actually done that and decided to do that. I think that's good. There are a whole pile of questions and pressures, you know, paying off mortgages and those sort of things, which we, uh, you know, got to deal with, obviously. Uh, most of these guys have done that and they're a little bit older. And I think good on them for, for doing that. So, so watch out for our witness being compromised by our lifestyles and think about that. Uh, overcoming, thirdly, overcoming some of the social barriers. These are challenges in evangelism. Overcoming social barriers. We are, as has been said before, so middle class that we actually find it very difficult to connect with other classes and cultures. And that's a real challenge to us. I read the scriptures and I see that Jesus, my saviour, left his glory and made himself nothing and accommodated himself totally, humbled himself uh, so that he could reach and, and connect with me and with the world and people. And, and that sort of accommodation is what is needed by Christians. And so in Colossians 3 verse 11, Paul says that in the church there is no Jew or Greek there's a cultural, huge cultural segregation, circumcised or uncircumcised, or religious differences there. Uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, all are brought together and united in Christ. Why do we find it so difficult? Well, I think there's a fear of contagion, which is really probably a lack of faith, a love for comfort and ease which is a challenge that we need to bring to our people. I spent five years with a guy who was an alcoholic uh, trying, to, tr- trying to connect with him without being at all judgmental and, and trying to you know, sort of just befriend him. It was really uncomfortable because I came into contact with, well, in, in his place, uh, prostitutes, drug addicts, criminals, and I, I was just, you know, 
It was just really uncomfortable. But I learned heaps. Not that I've arrived at all in that department, but I learned heaps from just that, that five-year experience. And, and we do need to call our people out of their comforts and, stop, and, 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 and challenging them to stop playing it safe. Um, our, church place, our church meetings should be places that we go to get strength and encouragement and recharging because we're out in this difficult world where we're battling with uh, people with all sorts of issues and problems. But if we never go out and we always play it safe, then what are we actually doing at church? We're actually spiritually obese. We're just becoming spiritually obese at church, really. Getting lots of food, but not really exercising it, not really ministering out there with that, that good stuff that we're getting. And so I think that's a real challenge in evangelism, getting our people to, uh, to move out of their comfort zones. Any questions and comments on that? And we're nearly done, actually. The last one's a short one. Uh, do you feel that tension, those sort of tensions as well? I mean, is it real for you guys? Now, we don't want to beat our people with this, but we want to encourage them to press into the life of Christ and, and live that out in the, in the world. Sorry, Brian. Sorry, yeah, thanks. Uh, just a challenge that uh, my wife and I have noticed that while people are sort of living in such individual lives and supposedly craving uh, community, uh, we've actually found it's quite difficult to offer that people that they seem quite content in their individual lives and uh, when you extend a hand of hospitality people aren't uh, actually all that eager to take it at at times so uh, have you found that to be your experience and uh, how how do you work your way around with that yeah that's that's good and that is that is very true we we live in a a cul-de-sac where we do in Kingston and we have invited all of the couples in that cul-de-sac to our place uh, but we've never had any reciprocation not that we necessarily expect to and they're, they're all a, a fair bit younger than us so they probably see us as being uh, you know older people you know and and not connecting socially on that and that sort of level so I, I kind of understand so that we've organized um, sort of uh, the, the ladies in the court have organized a, sort of a Christmas craft sort of Ingrid actually my wife set that up a Christmas craft thing and so we, we just keep working on it, persevering in it, really. Um, but yes, I think, I think isolation is something is part of our individualistic culture. I think of, I think of uh, when you talk about that, I think of France. I went to France once and, and um, met an, an evangelist there. Uh, and, and it was really, I went to his place, but it's really striking that in France, people have gates on their on their outside fence, which they actually lock and unlock when they go in and out. I found that really... And so, and so you would never, for example, in France, go door knocking. That would be a totally cultural no-no because they live even more individualised lives than we do. And, um, but I think, I think that there are always opportunities because really that's not God's intention for people and usually that comes out when people are struggling all of a sudden there will be, uh, there will be some need for connection um, when something happens, you know, uh, something, uh, some trauma in their lives, uh, losing a loved one or you know, accident or something like that. 
And so there are those sort of opportunities. And if you're connecting sort of regularly in other ways, then you'll have an opportunity to speak into that, even though they may, you know, you seem to be pushing all the time at the boundaries, provided you don't become objectionable in your pushing the boundaries. If you make it, you know, sort of opportunities to meet and so on, then I think I think you will have those opportunities and be praying about those. But yeah, it is a problem. I agree. We need to, again think creatively about how to get around that. I think the other thing that really was very helpful in the Dominic Steele introducing God course that he says that you need to create the connections in in a multi-dimensional way. So, for example, if you've got a colleague at work who you're quite friendly with, then go out and play squash with him or or do some other activity. So you've actually got and have him over for tea. So you've actually got your relationship is actually in in multi-dimensional places. And if you can do that, then you actually forge a deeper connection with those people. I thought that was a really helpful insight by Dominic. And he encourages that as part of the Introducing God invitation or um, uh, work. Any other comments? Well, let me finish. We're just about done. Uh, And then the last thing is perseverance. So we've looked at uh, perspective, getting the right perspective, uh, the priority prayer, uh, proper preparation, uh, focus on people, and finally perseverance. Uh, really being tenaciously persevering in this work. The work of evangelism, uh, Tim Chester says, uh, is low, low key, long term, and relational. That's not to say that God can't do an extraordinary work, as I said right at the beginning. He, he does sometimes do an extraordinary work, and I think at Bay Christian Church, in the first three or four years, we had a lot of non-Christians come in, praise God. That's, that stopped. Maybe I'm not praying enough. <laughs> but that, that stopped, uh, and we, it's down to a bit of a trickle now. Um, but God, I think God did a wonderful work there. Uh, but, but it does mean that uh, we need, because it's low-term, uh, low-key, long-term and relational, it does mean that we need to be persistent uh, genuine, it, intentional, sacrificial and loving as we interact with non-Christians. And William Carey is, is my, my sort of example for that. William Carey is a missionary uh, in the uh, 18th century. He's regarded as the father of modern missions. He founded the Baptist Missionary Society with some other guys and wrote a groundbreaking missionary manifesto which he called an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. (laughs) I love the titles back in those days. Anyway, he went to India in 1793 and it was seven years before he had his first convert. And he wrote in 1794, My hope for the conversion of the heathen was very strong, but among so many obstacles, it would utterly die away unless God... Upheld, un, unless upheld by God, having nothing to cherish it. So he found it really, really hard work. And yet, um, and he never saw many converts, but he did do some wonderful work translating the Bible into six Indian languages. And he died in 1834, but he left a great legacy uh, that sparked the Protestant mission effort in the 19th century. And, and it was his perseverance it was really his perseverance under those difficult circumstances. So I want to leave you with that final word of encouragement to persevere. Just keep at it. Uh, I think the Lord will honour 
uh, your uh, efforts at persevering. You may not even see it in your day, but things will happen if you continue to pray and work and trust the Lord for this. So thank you very much for... This is a tough gig at the end of the day and we're all tired, but thank you very much for, for listening and participating. Cheers.